you are once again listening to Replacement Level Morality. My name is Joseph. I'm Andrew. If you've listened to our first few episodes, you might be interested in following us at Twitter, where uh, we do lay out uh, some occasional spicy memes. Not really spicy, appropriate and hysterical memes. Uh, We like to find a middle ground between hot takes and ice cold takes. We want your take porridge to be just right in the fashion that Goldilocks would approve. They're Goldilocks memes. (laughs) They're in the Goldilocks zone. (laughs) And it's at replace LVL pod. It's at replace LVL pod is where we were at at Twitter. And you can email us at replacementlevelmorality at gmail.com. And wherever you're listening to us, you know, like, share, subscribe. It all helps, you know, reviews. We'd love to grow the audience of the show. And we appreciate everyone who's already started to tune in. So all that out of the way. We are recording this on November 11th. We sort of waited to 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 record our election takes, kind of let things simmer. I think that was wise. Because you and I watched the results together for several we did. hours. You drank perhaps one too many drinks of alcohol that evening, I'm going to say. It was exactly one too many because yeah. my wife took the bottle away and then went to the bathroom and I poured one more. So it was definitely the marginal one. Yeah, it was that last one where she knew. She knew you were at your limit, but because you were at your limit, you didn't know you were at your limit. So we had a good time. We had an excellent time. Did have a good time. But who did not have a good time, or at least not as good a time as they thought they would, was the Republican Party of the United States of America. Our takes were pretty on the nose, which was polls are kind of busted as a method to really understand what's going on, particularly on a state level. And we used vibes to interpret some results, but we kind of took a pass on a lot of uh, predictions. We, we we were not confident in anything. It's like, I knew J.D. Vance would win. It was by about how much. And we said, maybe he wins by eight points, which is kind of what happens. We knew that Abrams would lose, and she did by a lot. We knew we knew that uh, Beta would lose, and he did by a lot. And we knew Rod DeSantis would win, and he did by a lot, and then a lot more. But aside from that, the, mis- the issue was that the polls were all like 48-48 with 4% undecided for like three weeks. And it's like, I don't know what this means. Does this yeah. mean in New York 27, some two people I've never heard? What's going to happen here? I don't know. No one knows. And it turns out a lot of these races were 51-49 that went the other way. And it was almost like a little bit more money going to indisputed races would be better than going to Mar-a-Lago and sitting there. We'll, we'll get to the resident of Mar-a-Lago, I think, momentarily. But as far as the results go, it was a near miss in a lot of places. A very close run thing. and, and a It lot still of the, is close. Yeah. And, and a lot of the races that the GOP missed on, you know, they were almost there. They, they might end up winning the national popular vote for Congress. <laughs> Like by a couple points. I resent you mentioning this. That's not a thing. I know it's not a thing, but it's interesting as a measure because that is where the, like the, the generic vote was, was like R plus two. And everyone was like scribbling R, you know, this is biased. You know, this should be R plus six. No, it turns out it's probably going to be about R plus two. That was right. I think that there's a very good point there. I I was kind of floored in our vibes episode that Republicans were ahead in the generic ballot because that's pretty rare. But we we found that generic R probably was about three percent ahead. Problem is there weren't that many generic yeah. R's that ran. <laughs> Turns out uh, the generic R's that ran well outpaced plus two, right. plus three, and it is the the clown show R's. That dragged down the average to plus two. So, like, you need to you need to counterweight the plus twenty Desantis factor by getting your Doug Mastrianos in there to fuck things up for you. <laughs> and that that's basically how the results turned out. You had Lee Zeldin batting way above his replacement level for for certain. Uh, it comes up short, but probably drags a whole bunch of down ballot Republicans along with him. And yeah. you had Desantis, who was so good. He got Marco Rubio above 15. Like, remember Marco Rubio was supposed to be in a competitive race with Val Demings? That was a, that was the no. story for three months. Like, it's within five. It's within four. And then the, the dust settles. Marco Rubio, a man who was murdered live on television by Chris Christie. 
Is you, got you keep enough using that word man fifteen. very, very aggressively. I, he's clearly a robot. <laughs> <laughs> but DeSantis was wise. He decided to take everyone along with him on, on the journey. He wiped out the Democratic Party and statewide offices in Florida for the first time since Reconstruction. I mean, that's he's building his own team, his own bench within Florida by making sure they're sharing in his success. That is, that is what a smart political operator does. He builds it, allies. He builds he builds friends. He makes he makes inroads in in places adjacent to him so that he can expand his power. We'll get I'm to, confused. I know <laughs> it's so weird to see. I think the even more clear indictment of normal Republican would have won by a lot if you give him to the give it to the the electorate is in the person of Brian Kemp. Brian yeah. Kemp easily dispatched Stacey Abrams despite her massive political machine and almost unlimited money, outspent by Stacey Abrams, which is never happens to an incumbent. Got outspent, won by uh, eight points, won by a very clear margin, and made it so that every statewide Republican cleared 50% and there's no runoffs except for Warnock and Walker. So here's the question I have for you about Stacey Abrams. Does the superhero cape photograph photography from the Washington Post help or hurt? I, I am of the opinion that that sort of thing in itself doesn't actually matter because so few people see it. That would be, you know, making a decision on right. that basis, right? Like the people who see that uh, superhero cape, the picture with her with a literal halo, her being the president of Earth on Star Trek, a thing that literally happened. Very few people are interacting with that that aren't already vi- very politically engaged. Right. Um, but what it tells you is the attitude of this person. Did this the magazine cover matter? No. The fact that Stacey Abrams is the kind of person who would wear a cape on a magazine cover to portray herself as a superhero does say a lot. And when you go, when they, they just did a times, a brutal times piece taking apart her campaign of like she was high on her own supply. She thought she was bigger than the race that she had to run. She wouldn't do the things necessary to win as governor of Georgia. She thought it her above it. And she thought she could spend her way there. And she, as the race went on and her gap with the the voters and the polls continued to show her well behind, particularly with black voters, she got angry and vindictive and would like call into radio stations and like talk shit to people who like were purportedly on her side or boosters of her for not being boosty enough of her, like live on the air. Like she, she self-sabotaged because she was the kind of person who thought herself a superhero. And therefore, above uh, hugging people at the rope line and doing retail politics. Uh, It's interesting. That strikes me as a mini version of a phenomenon that's been pretty well commented on, that if you don't admit that you lost the previous election, you don't make necessary correctives. Yeah, if you don't admit <laughs> loss, you probably aren't going to change tactics. Like you can't get high on your own supply if you're like, man, I got I got destroyed in 2016 or 2018. Yeah, and she didn't get destroyed. It was close. But what that meant is you just needed to do a little bit more of what you're already doing to convince another 100,000 people to vote for you. But she spent two years being, you know, four years really being, you know, feted as the next big thing, potential national democratic leader you know, unlimited money going to her pack that she could then filter down to her corrupt lawyer friends, you know, just vetted for VP, vetted for VP talked in which she declines. Like you want to talk about hubris. Stacey Abrams was so high on her supply. She shot down being VP because she saw a path for herself and to power that did not require hitching her, uh, her trailer to Joe uh, Biden's wagon. That's insane. And then Brian Kemp, like what a fucking hero that guy is. He thread the fucking needle. He starts by just elbow dropping at a challenge that was, was force fed to him by Trump. Purdue gets talked into running against Kemp with Trump's backing because Trump's infuriated by his stonewalling of Trump's electoral conspiracies and Kemp bodies Purdue out of politics forever. 
right? Like just crushes him so hard in the Republican primary and there's no hope. And then immediately pivots and then ends Stacey Abrams' career right after. In a purple state, like it, it, he got it by eight points. Like it can be done. And I think that is where we're going with this conversation is Trump's got to fucking go. You said it on election night and it was the perfect way to crystallize it. It was a little alcohol had flowed. You looked up at the screen as we saw the results just not quite getting there for the Republicans. And it was clear it was going to be, you know, they're going to get a majority, but it's going to be real small. And it's just not going to be what people anticipated. And the message sold, but it didn't connect with voters into a vote because they still are too concerned about Trump. And you said, you're just going to have to beat him. Yep. There's- you will have to defeat this man. There's no way around. At some point, Trump will have to lose. He, he, in a way that maybe he'll never accept it, but nobody around him can stand to be around him anymore because he just lost too much. There's a difference between being beaten and being defeated. And you yes. said he must be defeated, which is the correct way to phrase it. He's been beaten. He's been beaten a few times. But to be defeated is to be run from the field. Purdue was defeated by <laughs> Brian Kemp, you know? They Charlie know Crist was defeated. Was defeated. <laughs> yeah, like, these people were defeated. And you must defeat Donald Trump. And there is he's not going to step off the stage. He's not going to be talked out of relinquishing his place in public life. He's not going to be talked out of his grievances. He no no outside force is going to save you from him. Um, you can't count on a heart attack. Can't count on a stroke. His mom lived to be like a like ninety five. Y- you have to accept that the only way forward is through him, and you must defeat him. And I think we're going to get that battle very quickly because just yes, last night we were we were talking about how Trump is so in his feelings about what happened that he like posted a bunch of truths to truth social uh, that uh, included him making a, an outrageous claim that he interfered in the 2018 Florida gubernatorial election with the FBI to allow DeSantis to win, which to the credit of the media, they immediately said was a lie. They want that to be true more than anything in the world. And you can feel it. But they know it's false because they were there. (laughs) They're like, yeah, we would have noticed. We would love this to be true. Uh, We know it's not. (laughs) This is is absolutely a lie. So uh, before we get too deep into that, I want to back up to what you said earlier, where you think this might happen. And everyone's kind of, they're kind of on to this point that DeSantis is the guy if we want if we want someone to defeat Trump, not just beat him. And I kind of call, I called the desanctimonious comment a couple days before the election, the firing on Fort Sumter moment. Right. You knew it was coming and that was definitely the first volley. Yes. How disciplined that it took that long. Like someone talked Trump into not talking shit for months, but he's still like, the guy was in an himself. active election. Yeah. And he, he still <laughs> couldn't wait till after election day. He almost made it. <laughs> so he almost was. made it. <laughs> Good job, Donnie. You get a little star. Because <laughs> Silver Star, oh, you didn't make it, but you got close. This is Silver Star, not the Gold Star. <laughs> Participation trophy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was it was so, the firing on Fort Sumter moment. Agreed. So if that's firing on Fort Sumter, what is the the volley of truths that were launched yesterday. I, I won't, I don't want to call it a uh, first bull run. I, I think it's more the skirmishes in okay. Western Virginia. You know, there was, a, there were some like real, like in, and in Kentucky, there was these kind of smaller battles that got fought before first Manassas uh, that people forget about in civil war history. And so that's where we're at. We're mm-hmm. at the skirmishing stage still. I don't think we're going to get to the the first true battle until probably a few months from now. It won't take long, by the way. I All this talk about how DeSantis will wait to declare until after the Florida legislative session, that's just not going to happen. Because Trump is going to 
announce on Tuesday he is going to spend all of his time bagging on Donald Trump. His ego will demand it. And the very first action that he will take will be, you're with me or you're with Ron DeSanctimonious, you know, Rhino, who, you know, is a man I made. Like he's going to, he's going to just vomit every insult he possibly can. Cause that's all he knows. And DeSantis is trying not to engage right now because he's just one so big that he can afford not to, but I can't imagine this is going to go on past January before he says, okay, it's on brother. We're doing this. And it's good. And it gives him this opening where he gets to declare a race for president of the United States. And he's literally saying, it's like, I just have to beat this guy. We all have to be done with him. Like that can actually be his, his reason for running of, and all of this happens before the Georgia runoff. Well, I mean that, I don't know if that's runoff's going to matter though. Um, because it looks like Laxalt's going to lose. Uh, Masters was always doubtful, but Laxalt is slowly losing his lead as they filter the last of the mail-in ballots in Nevada, and they're all from Clark County, and and they've skewed heavily Democratic, as most mail-in, mail-in ballots do, and he's probably not going to make it. But doesn't making the Senate 50-50, doesn't that make George, uh, Joe Manchin still Lord High Arbiter, and that matters over uh, replacement-level Democrat? I, I think it does in a world where the GOP doesn't have the house. Sure. Like before Democrats and I would call an inside straight draw to getting the house. Now they're on a two outer, you know, like <laughs> they're on a one outer right. They're they're their, their window is closing because some of the stuff late didn't break their way. Like Lauren Boebert looks like she's actually going to win where she looked like she might lose on election day. It, she's like ahead by 2000 votes now. It's obnoxious that that matters. It's obnoxious that she, her winning is a good thing. I really resent that. Yeah, we're we're going to transition into this part of that that part of our uh, discussion about the pain of having to care that Lauren Bo- Lauren Boebert is going to be a a reliable R vote despite her tomfoolery. Before we get to that, um, yeah, the the Senate race I don't think ends up mattering if it's clear the GOP has one plus twenty seventeen, or if it's clear the GOP has a majority. They're not going to be super invested in trying to get to 50 50 Senate because it doesn't matter that much on the margins because they're already getting all their judges. Like that was the deal. Mitt. No, no one talks about this, but Manchin signed off basically on saying, I'll just be a rubber stamp on judges if you stop sweating me over legislation. And so they've been very easily moving people through. And that's going to, you know, that isn't going to change uh, if you basically trade Pat Toomey for, for uh, Herschel Walker <laughs> in the end, right? Right. So the the energy would only be there if it if it would determine the chamber, and now it seems unlikely that it will. Um, I would love to see, from a political theater perspective, this is this is something that was said on commentary this morning or yesterday that I just listened to, and I just love the idea. What if Ron DeSantis showed up and went all in trying to help Herschel Walker? And got him across the finish line. That, what if that goes back to that building allies thing you mentioned earlier? Yeah. Novel political strategy. Yeah. What if Ron DeSantis, you know, ignores Trump, and then just focuses entirely on helping Herschel Walker get elected, and he and Brian Kemp drag his ass across the line on the message of we need to do this so that we can maintain as much parity and control in government as possible. Bury your doubts. This is what's necessary. You know, listen to us. You trust us. Yes, Herschel's here. He's fine. Cocaine Mitch will point him in the right direction. He's basically our John Fetterman. Don't, you know, like they did it. We can do it. You know, like <laughs> just, just, just love if, if Ron DeSantis goes all in and actually drags Herschel Walker across the finish line with Brian Kemp, like he, Trump's two worst enemies come together to outperform Trump's ability to motivate an electoral base. For Trump's guy, you want to talk about dabbing on someone? You want to talk about a flex? You want to talk about showing it's yeah we are going to defeat you? That might be the most baller move that they can make, and that would be worth every dollar you put into that race if you could pull that down. If if Ron DeSantis decides it's worth the risk, which I think it might be, I think there's very little downside to trying. Yeah. So if Herschel Walker ends up losing, it doesn't. It doesn't look that weak because 
Because he was Trump's guy. Like, everyone <laughs> couldn't do it across the finish line, you know? Yeah, you still get to blame you, Trump for handpicking You can still blame Trump for foisting him on you in the first place, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, well, you, you know, we tried to make this work. We did our best, but this is the problem with Trump's people. You can't, you can't rescue them no matter how hard you try, right? Like, there's not enough people who are willing to accept this. And so, yeah, I think it's a win-win. I think DeSantis should go all in with Kemp. Unity rallies. Just like go everywhere, get out the vote, knock on every door and make the pitch. It'll be interesting. So for so long, if you were against Trump, that was not being a team player. That was the accusation that got thrown at you. And if you make it, no, this is the team. You just kind of de facto steal the mantle of this is the team now. Do you see these this these hot takes coming across of Biden? It should be Biden Fetterman twenty twenty four. Are you serious? Like unironically. Unironically. Oh. unironically. Uh, they don't. They 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 are intoxicated by the idea of John Fetterman being vice president, replacing Kamala Harris at the top of the ticket. They think they they've got it figured out. They think that this is the special sauce. Is that you know a man with brain damage who wears cargo shorts cargo shorts everywhere that. That's what the, we were missing is that that special charm. Mind you, the man only won by two. He won by two and he won by two because a whole bunch of swing voters who hate Trump didn't vote for Oz because he was Trump's candidate. And because he doesn't live there. And he doesn't live there. He's an elitist. Turned off all the pop, would be populist votes. Yeah. Like the the generic businessman R probably wins that race. Given two random politicians. Being slightly more negative than the other one probably has a little bit of upside. And so you get this phenomenon where there's always a slight pressure to be a little bit more negative until it just gets too low and someone can go all the way back around with integer overflow and just be actual statesman, Ike, sit there in a suit and just do the work and it feels like we're at that moment where trump was as low as you could go on the uh more of an ass than the other guy meter yep and ron is just taking over the mantle up he had to do a little bit of it just to because that's where the base was but this feels like the moment where someone who just governs and acts like a statesman can reset all the way up to the top of that ladder. I will say that my caveat in agreeing with you is that Ron DeSantis cannot slack off in picking the correct cultural war battles. Yes. Because that is part of his success. He cannot interpret this to say, I don't have to, you know, do my cultural warring anymore. And there's like, I have to lay off the don't say gay bills of uh, that are in my repertoire. Now that's part of the reason you won by 20. Right. Un- unreported fact because the media doesn't like it. The education reform bill that passed in Florida was extraordinarily popular across both parties. Everyone thinks in Florida that it was a great idea. It's just the weirdos who work at Disney who didn't like it. Those picking those battles and figuring out where is the 65 to 70% position and pick and fighting them and actually engaging in them and not shying away from them is what he can- has to continue to do. And knowing which battles not to pick like, we got yeah. a 15 week abortion ban. That's where it's staying. This is not my issue, which I agree. DeSantis was correct on that position. And it was stunning to see how willing voters are to elect pro-life politicians while also rejecting abortion restrictions on the same ballot. Yes. We we live adjacent to Kentucky. Uh, Rand Paul just won for re- ran for re-election. He beat a, you know, Again, just some some poor stooge that they had stand up to lose to him by 30 points. And they also had on the ballot a constitutional amendment that would have restricted abortion. And it was rejected. It wasn't even an amendment. It was just like clarifying that the that the Constitution didn't say anything about abortion. Because the Kentucky Supreme Court has their own Roe v. Wade where they just read something into it that's not there. So, the yeah, the Kentucky Supreme Court basically read a state right to privacy and said, on this basis, you cannot pass these laws. And so this was an attempt to say, clarifying the Constitution, and I think it is, was technically an amendment because it was it was explicitly stating this is not in the Constitution. 
so that they could legislate for it. And even that minor change failed again on the same ballot where Rand Paul, a pro-life politician who's not shy about saying so, won by as many points as you want to imagine. Kemp and uh, Texas governor, both Abbott, Abbott both also won their reelections by a lot after passing pretty quick. Like, I don't know if there were heartbeat bills, but there were. Uh, yeah. De- DeWine too. Ohio is a heartbeat bill that he signed. Yep. He won by 22, 23 points. Yep. So y- you just have to, you have to, you have to pick your spots with this stuff and understand that the right way forward is to just, if people want to put it on the ballot, the the Republican position should be people should vote on this. That's the whole point. That was the argument of Roe versus Wade being overturned to begin with. Like what is the energy of Dobbs is this isn't in the hands of the court. It should be in the hands of the citizens. And if the GOP smart, they'll be like, well, this is what I believe. This is where, where I think the restriction should be. And the people should have a say in that uh, via referendum or, you know, whatever process uh, matches that state. And don't tie yourself to standing the the maximal pro-life position and going down with the ship when people react poorly to that, which is like was part of like Doug Mastriano's problem. He was just a fucking jackass who talked about how he wanted to ban abortions and he didn't care what people thought. Like, yeah. And, and then went back kind of on motivate it, like... people, it motivates people to turn out to beat you. Yeah. You know, if you're Mike DeWine, you know, if, or if you're, if you're Ron DeSantis and you're just like, I do have a pro-life position. This is what's on the books. And we're just going to, you know, in, in Ohio, DeWine's been very open about like if it winds up as a referendum, it winds up as a referendum, you know? I think this fits exactly with my overarching theory of abortion legislation, which is if you're on offense, you're losing. Uh, what do the American people think about abortion? They don't like to. Uh, because yeah. the the when you push either extreme, the corner cases just gets really uncomfortable to think about really fast and Americans just don't want to deal with it. If it's, if it's legal and it's somewhere that they don't have to think about what they're doing, they're fine with that because they get, they have lives. They want to think about other things because it's not pleasant to think about if it's illegal and it's like Ohio has a heartbeat bill, but that's the status quo. They're fine with that because they don't have to think about it. Mm-hmm. If you're on offense with abortion, you're losing. And, and I think Ron DeSantis got that. He's like, I don't, I, I'm not going to be about this. So people don't have to think about it when they think of me. Yeah. You, there's a needle of thread. You, you do want your pro-life uh, people to turn out, but you just have to set expectations and you have to set limits. And I think pro-lifers are actually kind of getting that as voters. I think so too. It's- they, they seem very pragmatic and being willing to support like the DeSantis position of like, I'm not touching the 15 week. That's how I'm keeping peace here. They had to take and a few L's, but yeah, it, but their W that they took was so large. They can afford it. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, you know, they, they got the dream of 50 years of jurisprudence. So like, okay, I'm not getting abortions entirely banned in Florida, but you know, this, we, we have a, another hundred years of history to like try and grind away at this, I guess. Like they can afford to back off in order to serve their other means because they're so far ahead where they thought they'd ever be. And as a pro-lifer, they, they're, they seem to have internalized that uh, what's actually winning is funding crisis pregnancy centers and not culture war legislation. And I, I'm down for that being the lesson. Yeah. Yeah, it's like there is a there is a really good seventy percent position to take, and I think the GOP is slowly figuring out that they can get there. And so are and Democrats. I, the 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 shout your abortion rhetoric dried up real fast once it was a question that was actually in front of voters. That was a luxury that you could have with Roe v. Wade in place, and they yeah, had to take it, a few L's too. Yeah, and we'll we'll see where everything winds up. I wouldn't be shocked actually to see national Democrats kind of just not necessarily endorse restrictions, but just not they they'll take a position where they're going to use the libertarian sort of impulse of don't trust the government to defeat restrictions as often as possible and kind of stop there, you know, like yep. maybe explicit 15 week stuff might be where they have a lot of like, they don't engage 
because they know that they'll lose. You know, I wouldn't be wouldn't be surprised if that's where they, they wind up going. One topic we put aside, I want to bring it back to the table was Lauren Boebert and what she represents and why we're sad we have to care about her winning. Because if there's an overwhelming meme takeaway from this election, it is very clearly that the electorate is yelling at the top of their lungs, directly into camera. Just be normal. Just be normal. We just want normal. They want normal out of Democrats. They want normal out of Republicans. They just want normal. They just want normal. And they don't want Lauren Boebert. They don't want her. She's going to eke out the thinnest possible dub in a blood red district in Western Colorado. You know, the great battle will be against Trump for the next two years. That's going to dominate all of our lives in terms of how we follow politics. But the secondary battle is going to have to be state parties, national parties, and interested voters coming together, whether it's under a banner that DeSantis organizes, because I don't know if it can be within the party. Maybe, maybe Ronna, uh, Ronna McDowell is, is, mercenary enough to to understand this is where the wind's blowing she might be she's the chair of the rnc you don't get that job unless you're pretty mercenary but it you have to resist the crazy in the primaries you cannot let the lauren boberts of the world and the doug mastrianos and the and the fucking carrie lakes and blake masters of the world capture these nominations and put you in this position where you are climbing with all of your energy uphill to try and get him over the like why the fuck is Herschel Walker a nominee for Senate in Georgia you know like you have to be willing to fight on the beaches when it comes to your nomination process you can't give up anymore you you have to pour all of your money into making sure you have electorate elector electable candidates and and treat it like it is the general it wasn't it's not the pendulum in politics that everyone talks about, but the the pendulum the pendulum of the normie establishment types versus the populists is definitely swinging towards the normies. The next time the Democrats decide to meddle around in nominating uh, contests to get the craziest motherfucker they can to win, which they will because it fucking worked, which is dark. Yeah, maybe played with fire about and did a not get burned. Yeah, like they play the fire and did not get burned. That is actually the worst case scenario because it's going to encourage him to do it again. Like if they had just taken one major L from that, maybe that would have convinced them that it's not worth it. But they really didn't. I mean, Carrie Lake might actually get elected governor, but like that she's like the the most performative of all of them. Like you, you kind of like you kind of think she's probably normal underneath the performance that she's putting on. But Mastriano's not dead, right? He's alive. Yeah. So they they still could. I guess my point is the next time Doug Mastriano runs to be governor of Pennsylvania and he the Democrats spend a million dollars trying to boost his campaign, you spend $10 million to bury him. I know it's annoying. I know it's a waste of resources. I know you don't want to do it. I know like having to talk to really right-wing people who don't are low information is painful. But do you want this to continue or not? Like you have to just get into the fucking trenches and put the jersey on and fight the battle and win. You know, that's a lot of metaphors there in that sentence, but they all work together somehow. So so why do we care that Lauren Boebert wins her seat? <laughs> because in the end, we are very vested in the GOP having some control of the governing apparatus because the democratic policies are actually bad. So, so here's where I have to level set a little bit because uh, one of the kind of recurring themes of this podcast is Joseph is a little bit more of a red partisan. I, I am more of a squishy libertarian who's generally not super invested in Republican success, but I found myself more disappointed than I expected to be. And here's why. Because Democrats spent $6 trillion, which was something on the order of 25% of GDP, which is huge, in a time when, if you, when real personal incomes had completely recovered from the pandemic. So we were just spending 
recovery money in heavy air quotes into a completely recovered personal income that translated straight to inflation because how could it not? We saw this because the, the stimmy checks that went out immediately went into places like collectible markets. The collectible prices were the first thing to go through the roof because people just got money that they didn't need. And the houses were the second because people like me who were renting suddenly found themselves sitting on an extra pile of cash that they weren't expecting and wanted to turn it into a down payment on a house. So housing prices were the next thing. Eat inflation isn't the right term because inflation is a rise in the overall price level and I will die on that hill. Mm -hmm. But the places where too much money chasing too few goods, which is inflation, was immediately visible. Crypto, like all of that, like the whole crypto boom was as a consequence of just all of this money with no place to go. And as some statistics, someone did a statistical breakdown of trying to track like what is responsible for the eight and a half percent inflation. And it was a pretty compelling argument that you could probably attribute of that eight percent somewhere probably between three and three and a half top end of four to the decisions you're describing, which was the six trillion ish dollars worth of spending done by the Biden administration. Completely discretionary. Yeah, that was unnecessary. And Imagine a political environment where inflation is half as much right now. I mean, it would it would probably be notable that like prices are going up, particularly in energy, because you still have the war, but it would not be crushing people's living standards, which is on the margins, which it is what it is doing and why it is a problem. So I'm not generally as high on divided government as a lot of other people and there's there's definitely a pull to that center in American politics. I actually do think that there are significant problems that will probably be resolved by a side just passing sweeping legislation. Immigration comes to mind where the it would be nice to have a coherent policy instead of just uh, we hope for the best and sign executive orders that don't do anything. Um let people drown in the Rio, the Rio Grande. That's a policy choice. Yeah, it's, but it's important for the GOP to have some control of the governing apparatus because it provides a check on an administration that otherwise has no one that cares what it's doing. Right, like that's the number one thing that House GOP having House control brings is now there's a group of people that have the power to subpoena you and call you into the public to account for your actions. So suddenly the decisions you are making matter a lot more because they are going to be dragged into the light, whether you want them to be or not. And that's why, unfortunately we have to give a shit about a crazy person like Lauren Boebert, who would otherwise we would enjoy not being a congressperson. that they have to win because now you need every vote possible to get to that number so that you can establish that element of control. And if only, if only they heard the cry of just be normal, it would be an entirely different circumstance that we'd be looking at right now. If Herschel Walker was replaced by some guy, if if Blake Masters, if Doug Ducey had run for that Senate seat, he would have won by 20 points. You know, like uh, you would have crushed Mark Kelly. Mark Kelly is not popular in Arizona. If you just made a few different decisions about getting the crazy out of the party and putting normal in there that is purposefully not connected to Trump, even like at a young kid level who kept him at an arm's distance and making it very clear he's a different kind of guy. And I don't really like this dude, but I understand he has his appeal. Uh, Joseph, don't you know that sometimes fascism comes in a sweater vest? God. Talk about takes that aged like milk. <laughs> he's like, like 56% approval rating in Virginia. People like Glenn Young. Glenn Youngkin. It's a shame like that Virginia is such a weird state where you can't run for re-election. Uh, random COVID data person I follow who lives in Virginia was like, man, the DMV works better than it did two years ago. Yeah. <laughs> you, just, like, you just have to govern well. And people will like you. You just got to manage the machine. Persuadable voters are not a myth. <laughs> that's the big takeaway that I had yep. from, from Tuesday was ticket splitting is alive. And persuadable voters are alive 
And voters who are willing to take two actions on the same ballot that seem contradictory because of the priors of the elected official versus the question is still alive. And it's good to be reminded that basic political things still matter because we had a basically a four-year break from considering that. After 2016, everyone threw the conventional wisdom into the garbage. And I was eager to, along with everyone else, uh, because Trump so shattered our preconceptions of what, what is or was not possible. But it turns out that conventional wisdom still has a lot of purchase. And we, I think, are wise to, to give it some deference. Also, uh, I guess shout out to New York Times Siena, who wound up being kind of on the money on every poll that they did at the end. Which is like they were the only ones I think that walked away saying we had the model that worked because we knew that these Senate races were not red wave territory. They were very uncertain. They were close but uncertain. And the the wave does not appear to be materializing the way people think. It's going to be very tight. And so they were right. And I think that their model demonstrated that independent voters were not all in on the GOP uh, nationally and that it was, it was very regionally. It was based on, on the circumstances at play in that state, which my goodness, gotta love it. It's good. Gotta love it. It's good. Uh, It's good to come back to this. It's good. The candidates matter. It's good that like the retail politics matter. That that's that's stability. You want that. I I said in our most recent episode that normies will save us all. I didn't think it would be quite so soon, but I think the rejection of Trump here is is maybe is what saves us because it allows the battle to finally be joined. Like it provide like because twenty twenty was a split decision because Trump lost but the GOP won seats and was so close that Trump was able to walk away without having really been defeated as we've said well this is a big enough loss that it, he people think he can be defeated like we can beat him now like yeah whatever the polls say now he is weak he is showing weakness let's go for the kill i cannot wait to watch it'll be the most entertaining political battle of our lives and speaking of wars but not civil wars we haven't talked about the ukraine russia war on this podcast yet, but it had a big update today, which was that Russia uh, has withdrawn from the West bank of the Dnieper entirely. And as a consequence, uh, was it uh, Kyrgyzstan is the city I think on the West bank. Yep. Yeah. Kyrgyzstan is now fully back in the hands of the Ukrainian army. And uh, for those unfamiliar, this is in the South of Ukraine where Russia's best troops are. Uh, This was the only regional capital that Russia had completely captured. Uh, It was very lightly defended in the opening stages of the war because uh, as, as mentioned, Russian Russia's best troops were attacking from the South and uh, in the, in the opening stages, Ukraine was trying to not have its capital taken. So uh, they gave up a lot of ground in the South very quickly. And the South is really the only place where Russia made significant gains besides the Donetsk and Luhansk, the Donbass area where they actually have ground level support. Uh, right. They have a population that, that is in for, for their takeover. <laughs> they have a lot of native Russian speakers who don't really want to be part of the Ukraine. And the militias were doing a lot of the fighting already and continue to be doing a lot of the, of the fighting. Kirsten's been re- recaptured, liberated, and the process of slow and steady gains in a World War One-esque artillery-dominated battlefield uh, continues apace. It's kind of been the story of the past couple months is very expensive and very slow recapturing of ground. No implosion by either side. The war is now kind of getting to the spot where I think you and I had always considered it likely it would it would start to reach a, a stalemate. Like Kyrgyzstan seemed tactically indefensible. It was this little they just had this little outcropping of territory in the, around this urban core west of the Dnieper that just you know, broadcasts a strategic weakness that is going to be exploited over and over and over again until you have to give it up. Right? Like 
that huge river, like incredibly long and incredibly wide, is a supply bottleneck that is going to make it very difficult to protect that territory without an extreme loss. And they were able wisely to detect Kyrson directly. They just kind of went down the Dnieper and squeezed and squeezed and put themselves in range to attack their supply lines infinitely until they felt like they had to give up, which is what happened. Very smart on the part of the Ukrainian army. They deserve to win. And this, the, the war is very much following in the, the, the way that industrial war uh, occurred in the 20th century the side with more money behind it is going to slowly win the war. The side that has unlimited material that it can draw upon, which Ukraine can, is going to be the side with limited material. Russia has decided to fight fight this war with limited material. They can choose not to, right? They can choose to devote themselves to a a war-based economy and do whatever is necessary to mobilize their population to to, to put a huge army in, in, in fresh arms and take over Ukraine, but it would require uh, forced conscript, conscription on a wide scale and an entire industrial reorganization to create the basic weaponry necessary to field that army. They don't want to do that because it would cause political instability. It would be rejected, might re- result in Putin losing power, and they have they've chosen not to take that step. And instead, they are losing slowly into the position where I think they, they have the most ability to hold out, which is the territory now that's where they have in Donetsk and Luhansk. They have a pretty stable line. And then they've got this land corridor to Crimea and fortify it along the East bank, the Dnieper. And okay. That's where we're at. That's, that's the strategic situation. All credit to the Ukrainians for fighting the way into this spot. You know, they can get all the weapons in the world. They still had to execute. They did it. The bravery of the people involved is infinite. How does this end? Because, I mean, do you you can fight this out for another six months. I don't see it necessarily changing very much. Well, changing how? Changing from the status quo of very slow territory reclamation or changing in terms of uh, the any territory changing hands at all. I think any territory changing hands at all. Like what I'm saying is this was the last clear strategic vulnerability of the Russian position. Ukrainians slowly ground their advantage into re, uh, a, a game as, as well they should. And now you have only the hard decisions left to make. At what point do you entertain negotiation? Because fighting it out in the fashion that will be necessary from this point forward is going to be even more ghastly than what you've already done. So the question of negotiation is a little taboo because, you know, the it's really Ukraine's position to decide, uh, but with our arms. So it's not like we don't have a say, but yeah. we have all the say ultimately. I mean, the, the reality of the situation is Ukraine cannot resist our, 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 I don't want to say demands, but they cannot resist our requests. <laughs> Make them an offer you know, they like, can't refuse. Yeah, we can, we're in a position where we can very clearly give Ukraine an offer they can't refuse. And so if we push them to negotiate or voluntold them that they have to negotiate and they have to put on a happy face about it, that it'll happen. And at what point do you start to push Ukraine to accept that? Because they're going to get almost everything that they would possibly want out of that negotiation. Because what Russia they- obviously, uh, Russia wants out of this. I think they do. I think they want out of, they've decided this was a bad decision. Russia wants out of this, but does Putin? I think Putin wants out of it too. I think like his best case scenario is a Afghanistan style withdrawal of like, it's politically damaging, but doesn't end his regime. Right. If, if he, if if he can walk away from this with UN adjudicated uh, voting in Donetsk and Luhansk about what they want to do, like, do they want to be their own country? Do they want to be part of Russia? Do they want to be part of Ukraine? And that you know, both sides will honor the result of a UN adjudicated ballot measure on that basis and gives back all the territory he has uh, between 
those oblasts and Crimea. And then you have some sort of permanent resolution on the status of Crimea, something Russia has probably the most uh, legitimate claim to, quite frankly. Right. And the most uh, real politic leverage over. And you just, you accept, Ukraine accepts Crimea going to the Russians in exchange for Russia having to accept that Ukraine is going to be part of NATO, you know? Yeah. And that's just the way it is. Like you, you're, you have to give up on the defensive alliance piece. Like this is, or, or there, or maybe there's an explicit guarantee of, of Ukraine's independence by NATO, but they promise not to join. So there won't be NATO arms in Ukraine, but they get to be under the shield, you know, as like a, like a half measure to say, we'll defend Ukraine with full measure of our power, but because they're not members of our military alliance, we will not have our planes, tanks, and missiles based in their country. That'd be and that satisfies that'd be that would satisfy Russia's like paranoia. And like this is this would be a great deal. Like if you're Zelensky, you get handed this offer to say the two pieces of your country that don't want to be part of your country are no longer part of your country, and that problem is solved forever. Uh, Russia has to pay uh, whatever dollar value you want to assign to damages that they have. That's the key. I think is Ukraine for the most part has the better end of how did things go in the war. So if the only result is Ukraine lost territory, I don't think that's acceptable to Ukraine. I think there has to be a dollar figure in reparations and, and a guarantee of their defense in the future. For, yeah, sure. That's that's kind of expected, but and and then Russia's dollars have to be backed up by Western dollars too. Like there has to be a pretty big check that gets written to to satisfy all parties. Yeah. The problem is, I don't think this is close to happening as you do. I think that that, that wars are fought on the scale of years. I don't think Russia's close to breaking. I mean, they they could just implode tomorrow. But I don't think that's likely. I don't no. think they think that they're beaten as much as you do. I, I, th- I, th- I think we'll end up there at some point. I think that will happen a year from now. I think that the, the, the critical period that we will see next will be summer of 2023. What happens then? Because I don't think there'll be much movement. It's going to be winter. No one's going to want to fucking fight in winter in, the, in Ukraine. Yep. <laughs> it's going to be a lot of just the lines will be static. There'll be a lot of delivery of weapons. Both sides will will try to their best to position themselves for basically a, a, a post spring campaign season. And if it stays in stalemate in August of 2023, they're going to they're going to find a solution. They're going to th- at that point, they will talk. If Ukraine looks like they're actually going to run the table and force Russia out of their defensive position and actually win, then yes, uh, that there will be no negotiation until they run you know, the orcs run back to Mordor, right? Like that—that's the only thing that they'll accept. But if the if the hard fighting starts and it's hard, and two months go by and there's no movement and there's just a lot of body bags on both sides, and there's a lot of political discontent and a lot of a lot of ordnance getting used and a lot of people just dying, there's going to be more and more appetite, particularly in Ukraine, to be like, okay. Let's deal. But that was the status for most of the summer until Ukraine actually launched a successful offensive. But there was a there was a long period of stalemate in between where there were just body bags and nothing happened. Yeah, I think we're there was reason to believe that Ukraine could continue to succeed because of how strategically overstretched the Russians were and how evident it was that their their logistics were bad and Ukraine could pick its spots and and pick off the the strategic areas of weakness and that's exactly what they've done but now russia is fortified behind a, a very strong defensive position in, Luh- in luhansk and donetsk and getting across the deeper is going to be a lot <laughs> like, it's going to be very painful uh i don't i don't even think ukraine necessarily is entertaining trying to get across the deeper um so w- with that environment I wouldn't be shocked if there's two months of very intense fighting with tens of thousands of casualties and eventually a, a mutual recognition that this is going to have to come to an end and and that there's a favorable settlement in the end for Ukraine, but one that does perhaps on paper cost them territory, but really solves their 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 problem. 
They they don't want Donetsk and Luhansk, really. Like they don't want those people as part of their country. Like this is why they've had this problem. So them leaving isn't a bad thing, <laughs> right? For domestic political unity, uh, it's yeah. But signing over Crimea is yeah, and that is where they there has to be money. There has to be security guarantees. There has to be a lot to make that okay. Uh, but I think that if NATO steps in and says, we will ensure that no Russian jackpot boot ever takes another step into your country ever again, if you agree to this, that's going to be a really big carrot for them to take, you know, yeah. of like, this is the last time you're going to have to deal with this. Like we will defend you like you're a member of NATO. If they do it again, that might be enough for them to be like, Crimea is worth this cost. And without Donetsk and Luhansk, uh, the pro-Russian parties of Ukraine just kind of don't exist anymore. <laughs> it's true. There's, they have no, uh, they have no support anymore. Well, I don't think they do anymore anyway. Right. <laughs> to be honest with you. Zelensky is going to be president for a long time. We'll just put that. They're going to change the constitution to keep him in power as long as he's alive. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Um, but so it goes for war heroes. And it's worth noting that at the beginning, before the war, when it was that, will he or won't he phase where there's just a bunch of arms building up and we're like, what is happening? The question was, would Russia invade West of the Dnieper? And we all kind of said no, because it would be silly (laughs) because it wouldn't work. And it didn't work. They're not prepared to do so. Yeah. And (laughs) turns out they weren't. And their last big L Right back to strategic reality. Their rivers are difficult things to have to manage for your supply lines for your hundreds of thousands of troops. And, you know, and especially when you're when your opposing force suddenly has been fully equipped and trained on the use of extremely accurate long range artillery that is particularly adept at striking your your weak infrastructure, uh, you know, hinge points. Uh, suddenly the Dnieper is essentially a hard barrier you cannot get across. Um, and that goes for both sides with HIMARS and Iranian drones fully fulfilling the same role of striking logistics I, hubs. I don't want to hear again though in, in mainstream media about how the Russia is going to nuke anybody. Like if Russia is unwilling to devote any more of its resources to prosecuting uh, this war a- as it is, they are not willing to risk <laughs> nuclear annihilation. Annihilation of the world. Yeah. Yeah, like they're they're not even willing to uh, institute a draft, a bigger draft, and like repurpose their manufacturing to making AKs. Like if they're not willing to do that, they're not nuking anybody. That's not happening, provided the the hard line of not taking a step into you know the nominally recognized Russian territory is 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 followed. They're never they're not going to. That is very clear now. So. I, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be shocked though if there was movement towards a negotiated peace um within the next six months, even before the summer period. If there is a if there's economic roiling, if there's a really bad recession, if things look grim globally for a couple of quarters, uh there could be a lot of pressure on Zelensky to take what would be a pretty big big victory lap in a negotiated settlement even before they got back to more fighting. I want to shout out this uh, podcast called The Eastern Border, done by Latvian Kristaps Andresen, Andresens. I'm sorry if I screwed that up, but um, he's he's a Latvian, so he's very. But he's done a lot of in hard hat touring of Ukraine, and he's been covering Russia and Russia's uh, position, trying to beat up its neighbors for. Uh, before it was cool, as the kids say. Um, But he has always maintained that nukes are more taboo in Russia than they are in the US, that they have a wariness of them. And at the common level, they just really hate the idea of a nuke ever being used in a way that we don't, partially because we use them. But Russia is very committed, is... You know, a Latvian's not saying this lightly, but he's no. Yeah, they would. <laughs> you were talking about Russia, living under the the shadow of the Russian boot. Yeah, be live in the Baltic but countries. I, I was very, 
reassured to hear him say that that no russia russia won't nuke anyone that's good to hear and it's good to have like that perspective of someone who who were for this has been uh, more on the top of their mind uh than for than others but just looking at the actions as of russia as a state actor it, nuclear weapons are a huge escalation but they've taken none of the escalatory steps between where they are now and nukes to suggest that they're interested in in and doing strategic that. nukes are a huge escalation. I don't know that tactical nukes are the huge escalation you're saying. Like if you just I, said, I, "Hey, here's this Ukrainian position that's a little too con- concentrated," and threw a very low yield nuke at it. That's I just the United States has communicated to Russia that the use of a tac- tactical nuclear weapon will be treated as if it was any other kind of nuclear weapon. I think that is what they've made clear to them to say. You think you can get away with this? I just make it clear you're not going to get away. Like there, there is no room for you to do this. If you do that, then we will act like you are going to do all of the bad things. Well, thanks for listening to Replacement Level Morality. Check us out on the social medias or email us. Like, share, subscribe. We appreciate it. And we'll see you next week.